Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. Dissatisfaction with democracy was widespread before COVID-19. How will the surveillance and other measures now being put in place in the name of public health affect democracies? How can societies, regardless of the virus, redeem their democratic values? And how do they regain representative government? Gabriela Cuevas, the president of the International Parliamentary Union, Paula Di Perna, a policy advisor and media commentator, discuss these and other questions with Alan Stoga, the chairman of the Talberg Foundation. So today we are going to talk about the state of democracy. And I would like to posit that long before coronavirus was a word that any of us knew, there was a problem with democracy. Cambridge University published a study earlier this year that declared, the headline declared, 60% of people around the world were dissatisfied with democracy. And in fact, that many of the world's most populous democracies, the United States, Brazil, Nigeria, Mexico, as well as the United Kingdom, South Africa, the list goes on, were places where majorities of people were unhappy with their leaders, unhappy with the democratic system, unhappy with how democracy was functioning for them. And then COVID happens. And it's hard for me to imagine that people are happier today than they were then over how democracy is treating them. With that premise, Gabby, you are a congresswoman, you've been a senator, you are the president of the IPU, so you have a global perspective on democracy and non-democracy. How do you, just as a generalization, how do you see the state of democracy in early 2020? Well, thank you, Alan. Clearly, the state of democracy is not very optimistic now. And it's not only on COVID, it's also in the way that we're handling solutions for the people that we represent. I think that this virus is more democratic than the planet because it is not discriminating any kind of regimes or any kind of uh, income or anything. But the real risk is what's going to happen with freedom, with liberties after this pandemic. I mean, if we analyze what's going on in countries as China, or in some other countries that's starting, for example, now in Mexico, the government just announced that and no one took any notice about that. But, uh, well, if the governments are able to be tracking citizens through their cell phones now because of this pandemic and because that's the way to stay healthy, but if that continues after the pandemic, what we're going to see is that even so-called democratic countries are not going to be following freedom and liberties and rights that they are supposed to defend and to be inspired inspired on uh, as a democracy. So I think that's the real risk after this pandemic. Yes, democracy is not very popular nowadays, but my concerns are going, what's going to happen with freedom and liberties after this pandemic? Because some democratic countries are very happy using authoritarian tools. Let's come back in a moment to the tr- supposed trade-off between liberty and health. If you remember after 2001 and 9-11, we had the supposed trade-off between security 
uh, and liberty. So I'm going to revisit both of those in a second. But Paula, what's your take on the state of democracy in 2020, pre or post COVID? Well, I mean, globally, um, globally, Gabby hit the nail on the head. For me, the, the problem with democracy, both globally and in the United States, is that you know representative government is supposed to reflect the debate. It's not supposed to be the debate. And I think what's happening is that the formula of debate, the sources of debate, the many, many ways society, again, speaking perhaps mostly in the United States, the many ways people used to debate and be able to debate the so-called civic landscape has been completely shrunken. You know, for many reasons, people have stopped engaging at the community level and, you know, we can talk about that. But so suddenly then all the frustration and anger and need that people have ends up becoming the democracy itself, rather than having your quote elected official represent the synthesis of all that pre-existing debate. And so therefore the institution is being called upon to um, be, be everything to all people at all times. And that's not what democracy is supposed to be. Democracy is supposed to be a synthesis and an avenue to deliver the most good to the most people, not everything to everyone all the time. Democracy is obviously, and that's what you just said, more than just elections. And there is a tendency in many countries to decide, well, we're a democratic country if we hold elections, more or less free and fair. But what you're suggesting, Paula, is that there, there's something much deeper, broader, and longer than just the electoral season. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. In the United States, we have senators every six years, House every two years. That was precisely to modulate the, the, the turnover. But now the issues don't conform to those uh, sections. It's like a grapefruit. You have sections. Um, you eat the grapefruit by sections, but the sections can't eat just one and say you had the grapefruit. And I think that's true of elections, that elections, again, are part of the process to continue. They're on a continuum, elections. And you can have swings, but if you have too many swings, you, you know, back and forth, back and forth, like a tennis match, you will not have democracy. You'll have swing elections. Leaders in Europe, in the United States, and other countries are talking about current circumstances as being like a war. There's a lot of war metaphors being used uh, President Macron has used it. President Trump has used it. Many others have used it. One of the things we know about how countries react to wars is that they tend to suspend democratic rights. Do you think leaders are using that framing of this crisis as a war in order to, uh, because it's appropriate, or in order to use the tools that you suggested they might be using, that is, uh, tools which allow them to become more powerful as heads of government and heads of state uh, at the cost and expense of democratic values, democratic practices? I don't think that we can uh, have a general judgment in this case, Alan, because I believe that some countries, yes, they are using this opportunity to take more power, to uh, limit freedoms, uh, civil rights, but there are some other countries that are truly in a state of worry. Of course, we are not seeing these huge weapons and these huge threats, but in terms of how people are living, they have to stay at their houses, they cannot go to work, a lot of people is uh, uh, losing their jobs or, or, or having less salary, 
So yes, this uncertainty is not easy to deal with as a government and of course as for the citizens. Uh, I just had, for example, a phone call with a parliamentarian from Austria last week. And he's not that young, but uh, not that old too, to be very clear on what happened on the Second World War. But for example, he was telling me that for going from his home to the Austrian parliament, he had to stop twice with the army and to show some papers and, and explain them why he was using his car and not being at his house. Because these are new circumstances. We were not prepared for a pandemic. We were not clear on the super importance of a health system. We were not clear on how we can handle these circumstances with the population. So I think that for some cases, yes, it is perfectly justified. But again, I believe that the real risk is what's going to happen after the pandemic. Some of these governments are going to feel very comfortable tracking the citizens through their cell phones. Some of the governments are not going to be, uh, I think, uh, enough only tracking citizens. They are going to try to intervene in the communications because this is not new. I believe that uh, some of the governments are not using technology to prevent sickness. They are using technology as a tool for an authoritarian governance. So that's my, my concern, I believe, as as a parliamentarian, as a congresswoman, that yes, we need to handle this uh, uh, health emergency, but we are also going to need very strong parliaments and uh, very strong uh, civil society to recover those human rights, those liberties that some countries are taking away and they are going to try to take it away for good. Paula, you've talked to me before about the need to redeem democratic values. It was in the context of the United States, but clearly, as Gabby just suggested, it is a global issue. If we're able to redeem, uh, reinstate, reinvigorate democratic values, we may well be able to create the basis to go back to, or maybe go forward to, the sorts of democracies that we want, as opposed to perhaps the sorts of democracies we have at the moment. Uh, What do you mean when you talk about redeeming democratic values and how do you do it? I think what I mean by values, uh, democratic values, is this idea of representation and common good, that that, uh, democratic values mean you appoint, you, you somehow elect a government that represents most of the people most of the time for the common good. And that's bedrock. And then you design an architecture in our country that was the Constitution and the separation of powers. And, you know, it's a kind of a balance act, but everybody kind of had a general idea how the three branches were supposed to work over time because we taught it nonstop in school. And so how you redeem those values is you you almost have to kind of re-educate people in terms of why, what makes us human is that we have rights and we have responsibilities. Who, who determines the balance of those is someone, is ourselves in the first instance, and when it becomes a public question, a representative in the second instance. And you have to take people almost back to the bedrock. And of course, what's different now um, than even 50 years ago, and Gabriel, Gabby makes a great point about World War II. You know, here we are in the West constantly talking about a war, war mentality, World War II. Well, if you didn't live through that, 
you know, war means a lot of things to people. If you're the one that the bombs are raining on, you don't really want to be in a war mentality. So back to redeeming democratic values, I think a core to that is to be able to inspire people to think of the public good um, without having to think about being at war. The two are not equal. We're talking in, in the pandemic about a mobilization of material and tools for the public good. We're not talking about taking over something else. And back to also the tracking of people, you know, it's not in democratic values to track people and keep track of where they are and, and, and what they're doing. Um, it's just not part of what democracy is supposed to be. The only reason that we do it, we've all become complicit in allowing it because it helps us buy the things we want or we don't want to pay a toll booth collector to collect tolls. So we have easy pass. And now the government in the United States knows exactly where your car is going at what time. We've become complicit in all this tracking for commercial reasons. So, you know, the values of democracy exclude, in my opinion, tracking people. There's no reason for the government to know where you are at any given moment for any reason, unless you're violating the law. So we do have to get a little bit back to bedrock. I guess that's kind of what I meant. But the information technology genie is out of the bottle. Uh, fact is that bedrock has been washed away. Fact is that technology does permeate our lives. And fact is that social media has replaced that old concept of how we talk about issues and how we communicate about issues. We all live in that world. It's, it's not going to disappear. What do you, Gabby, as a leader in Mexico, a Mexican politician, and a leader on a global stage at the IPU, what can you do to if not push back, reshape those forces in ways that can help us not return to somewhere, but get to somewhere better? I think that technology, social media, a lot of changes are going to take here, whether we like it or not. That's, that's how the world is evolving. And yes, those tools, that technology, what we are saying or using in our cell phones or computers, yes, a lot of information can be used in a very perverse way from companies or, or also by governments. But there's also another side, and I, I would like to be an optimistic. I think that technology, all the social media can be also a very good platform for freedom. If we take a look on what happened uh, with the Arab Spring, for example, that started with social media for good or bad or the ugly, but that started with people talking in social media. If we also take a look on what's going on with the new generations in many authoritarian regimes, those kids, those adolescents are seeing that people in other places are having liberties, are having rights that they cannot enjoy in their own countries. So that possibility of seeing different realities is an opportunity, and I would like to see it that way. The, the chance that social media and internet and a lot of new tools is giving to us, and I think that's also having a very important accent with this pandemic. We are also changing that, the way that we socialize and the way that we can have a, an interesting conversation with people in all different latitudes. So I think that uh, what we need to do, and perhaps that's my uh, approach as uh, eternal legislator, is that I do believe that we need to improve our legislation 
in terms of how we are going to handle technology. Perhaps the problem is that we as politicians are not very clever when it comes to technology. For me, handling my own cell phone or a smart TV or the computer is always something new. But we need to understand that the world is moving really fast and that technology can be, yes, a perverse tool, but also, again, I would like to think that also a very important platform for improving democracy. I would like to see a more direct uh, democracy, more conversations, more involvement from citizens, as it is happening in some of the strongest uh, democracies in the world. And let's hope that this is not being used as a perverse tool from companies or even from governments. Paula, do you have any ideas? How do, how do we make this better? We know it's not great. We know there's great risks. We know that technology is neutral and it's whoever uses it that is not that is either good or bad. What can we do individually uh, as citizens, as members of different organizations? What can we do to try to come out of this in a better place than we went into it? You know, back to what I said earlier about democracy, in my opinion, being the representative of the debate and not to be the debate. The debate. I mean, one thing we could do is perhaps do a little more self-curating of social media, which by that I mean <laughs> use less of what's not productive and um, maybe we create, we create some intermediary institutions that are citizen-generated that have a curatorial function. And, you know, I, I haven't got some specifics, but I know potentially we could do things like that so that the debate gets synthesized sooner and gets raised a little bit more in a synthesized fashion, um, not to go back to the old town hall, but, you know, we can certainly do virtual town halls in ways that are not as polemic and as partisan as they tend to be, get out of the chat room with your friends and into a more generalized chat room, but not into the extreme chat rooms. You know, there's got to be something in between, and I think we're capable of developing those. And then something I've decided to do just individually is uh, what I call the three R's, uh, uh, resist, rebel, reject. So that anything that I think, not anything, because I'd be at it all day, but key things that I, I don't like, I sort of, I, you're constantly getting a survey. How did you like your dinner last night? How did you like this? How did you like that? I've started answering them, but much more in detail. I resist and I say, look, this, I think you have to stop. And then rebel, you know, I talk to whoever I can talk to about the ideas and I try to put them out there and then reject. I, some, I think we do. And after the pandemic, here we have a, a clear example. We have society saying what is and what isn't essential, who is and who isn't essential. And I think we have to do that in our own uh, daily consumption, not only of media, but of, of, of objects and things, ideas. Just you have to sort of start, we do have to start to reject. And I've always been uh, resentful of the fact that my eyeballs on a screen at any particular time turns into money for somebody else. Why should that be? That's the business model of the internet that has enabled our privacy to become capital in, uh, for someone else. So, but we, as I said earlier, become complicit in that. So we have to start rejecting at certain levels. So more curation, definitely better legislation. Gabby's 100% on that. Um, just reading a book yesterday called Weapons of Math Destruction, M-A-T-H in English. And, and that's about the, the, the misuse of, of algorithms um, of the, the misuse of big data to, to support 
uh, what we would call nefarious, uh, even nefarious public policy. So all of this needs to be strained through, um, again, the sense of common good and what it, what is really the purpose of all of this analysis and data. That's the question. What's it about? What's it for? Is it essential? And how can I secede from what's not essential? I think if we asked ourselves those questions, we could probably get to the answers a little bit quicker. Gabby, I have a horribly unfair question for you. And it's unfair because you don't come from East Asia, but there is an island of civic contentment in the world and it tends to be East Asia. What have the Asians figured out that we haven't figured out? Is it culture? Is it fundamentally different approaches to democracy? Uh, what do you think? I think that the problem sometimes when we are talking about democracy is that democracy needs Democrats. And democracy is not coming into a certain DNA or it's coming only from a book. Clearly, democracy needs a lot of elements. For example, I was very surprised when some countries were pushing to have, uh, let's put a different uh, region, but to, to have democracy in Syria. Well, there are very few democratic countries in that region. There are very few strong country uh, parliaments in that in that countries if we go back to asia and southeast asia where there is there is there has never been a democratic tradition so thinking that suddenly democracy is going to come up and it's going to be like the best idea for the region or for specific countries i think is not understanding their own history and their history is not good uh, the largest democracy in the planet could be India. And India is not having the best moment in terms of inclusion or human rights or uh, even internal debates. So the problem with democracy is that the best democracies are not working as democratic countries. Their parliaments are not as strong as they used to be. If we see also, you mentioned US, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, many, many countries. Well, I think that democratic countries need to take a look on how we are working. Paula was telling about the values, about the procedures. A lot of things are becoming fake. So we need to, to rebuild our democracies. But also, I think that we need to understand the different realities that are coming from different regions. And that's why I am an optimistic in social media. If we see, for example, what's happening in China, well, a lot of, of Chinese young people are trying to reach social media and to look for different realities and to have conversations with different uh, nationalities. So I think that there's something going on in the new generation that perhaps we are not reading properly. And I would like to think that if we do our job properly and we legislate and we try to fix our own democratic models, yes, new generations are going to be better than us. They are uh, they're feeling the freedom that we never experienced because we didn't have social media. We didn't have smartphones when we had the rage. So I think that they have an opportunity, they have a good platform. And yes, we do need to protect our own uh, intimacy, our own thoughts, our own ideas. Because yes, as Paula was mentioning, yeah, we don't want someone having profits from our own uh, behavior with the computer. But that has two sides, and we need to deal with both sides. And so I try not to criticize uh, uh, different latitudes because we had 
we have a different background. We need to, to lead by example and we need to fix our democracies because in the other side, well, I don't think that a person from Singapore is going to be jealous about what's going on in US or in Mexico or in Brazil. They are having a very good uh, GDP per capita, very good development, very good reactions from the government. I don't see any tragedies going there and I don't see people demanding democracy because they haven't experienced that and they are certainly not jealous about other countries. Let me pull on that last thread because really what you're talking about is the social contract. There is a social contract between the people and government, and that's true clearly in country after country. One can make the case that in the last decade at least, if not longer, governments haven't been delivering what people expected, and that that leads to unhappiness, that that leads to polls that say democracy is failing me uh, isn't surprising. Paula, social contract, would you agree or am I completely wrong that governments aren't delivering in many, many cases what people seem to expect and it gets manifest in this cry from the heart that democracy is failing? Yeah, I, th I think that's very concise and correct. I mean, the social contract, common good, public interest, whatever. Yes, we expect government to be, that's its role. If it's not going to deliver that, what is it for? And then you get into what we're potentially entering is a, is a time when people are questioning all form of government and, you know, disruption occurs. And then what? Then what? If you disrupt, what do you bring the disruption to? The fruit of the disruption, where does it go? If it doesn't bubble up into a democratic form, it ends up in an anarchic form. So yeah, the, but the other side of that is what is the expectation? You know, maybe part of the breakdown of the social contract is that we, the people, expect too much from government in the sense that we expect them to be able to ensure things beyond the basic social contract. And so maybe we have to kind of redefine that. And I think you're right, prosperity, but how much? Prosperity for a few, prosperity for all, less for all, more for a few. You know, what is the definition? Certainly in the United States, the inequality of income distribution, racial inequality, gender inequality that, that um, Gabby referenced, we have to revisit all those because we're suffering for tremendous inequality, which is the number one indicator of a failure to deliver on the social contract. We don't really have time to go into inequality, but for what it's worth, the data are pretty clear. Most countries in most places are less equal today than they were a decade ago or two decades ago. That is a global problem manifest in lots of different ways, but it's a global problem that is producing, I suspect, this challenge for democracy. Gabby, last word, last optimistic word. Well, I, I, I am never an optimistic, but I think that in this case, humanity needs to learn a lesson. It, the majority of the world population is staying at home and they are afraid and living in uncertainty. And governments also need to change. We cannot go back to business as usual after all this uh, suffering in some countries, but also, again, I think this context of uncertainty, it's going to stay here and we're going to have a stronger sense of uh, belonging to a community, a stronger sense of responsibility. I think that we 
we took a lot of things for granted because these generations were not into a context of war. Uh, my generation grew with a with the stability in terms of uh, economics, in terms of democracy. So this is going to be a moment to take a look on our reality and the values and the, the experiences that we miss. And of course, I think that, again, as I was saying at the beginning, the real challenge is going to start. How are we going to take back our freedom, our liberties, our rights? that some governments are using through this uh, pandemic to take away. So I think that's going to be the most important battle after the pandemic. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Paula. And we'll continue this conversation in the future. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Bueno. Thank you for listening. Please check for other podcast episodes and video talks on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And follow us on social media to stay tuned for upcoming events.